Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm one of the hosts, Arden O'Connor, and I'm joined today by Bill Messenger. Bill, thank you so much for coming on today. Well, I'm happy to be here, Arden. So I enjoy introducing all of our guests, but I feel like I have the special honor and privilege. And before I read your extensive bio, Bill, I just have to say, as a young person entering the field, or or maybe someone who likes to think of herself as young, you were an incredible mentor to me and really introduced me to, frankly, exactly the issues that this podcast deals with, addiction, family dynamics, and affluence. And I Anytime somebody asks me about my entrance into the field or how I got into serving the population, we do. I reference our relationship and the kind work that you did to sort of shepherd me through various conferences and referral sources and even help us flush out our business model. So a a big thank you before we even begin. Well, you're welcome. You're doing a great job and you've done much more (laughs) than I've ever done. So uh, I really respect how you contributed to the field. So. I thank you for your work. Thank you. I don't know if that's true, but we'll dive in. So Bill is a retired lawyer and an alcohol counselor. He grew up in a family business and on the side, um, he dealt with trust in estates and alcoholism, both in his personal and his professional journey. After completing treatment in 1995, Bill was surprised at the high relapse rate and the lack of efficacy offered by treatment centers. Um, he began applying the models Um, that are used, the successful models used for pilots and physicians who go into recovery. And he started trying to figure out how to apply those to families, um, including families that are coming from wealthy backgrounds who are high profile in their communities to try and increase what we know are not great recovery rates, which Bill, you mentioned the article that was recently produced by the New York Times that addresses this very issue. Um, Bill is a leading expert on what works for recovery for the affluent, and, and he's very prominent and has written a number of articles. I've been honored to be your co-author on a couple of those in Trust in Estates magazines. Um, you're, I also know that you're an advocate for treatment reform in, in the current system, trying to figure out better ways to find efficacy through the treatment that is offered in facilities, um, and trying to figure out what kind of community-based alternatives might be available, which was very much the basis of O'Connor Professional Group, our company. Uh, And I think one of the things I've always admired is your ability to look at what the economic drivers are in the business of treatment and figuring out how do we better align those with how we get families to a better place to have long-term recovery. So we're gonna jump right into the main topic that we get asked about from all of our clients, which is do affluent people have higher rates of substance use and why? What's the reason behind it given their enormous financial resources? Uh, that's, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think it's something that people have thought about because uh, there's a great deal of secrecy in, in wealthy families. And so uh, people really don't talk oftentimes about the addiction issues, but I would say in my experience in my family, our uh, addiction rates for alcoholism were around 50%. And, uh, and that includes my uh, grandparents, my 
aunts and uncles and and uh, some in siblings and also in the more general families that I uh, am affiliated with, in-laws, outlaws, etc. I would say it's twenty to thirty percent in uh, either mental health, uh, addiction, alcoholism, etc. And so what happens is the family gets organized around the people with the problems, and so the people who don't have the problems who are thriving oftentimes get left out uh, of of the family uh, dynamic in the sense that they're doing well and and they're kind of ignored and the, the problem family members get all the attention. Uh, they also, it's very, uh, I think people, uh, uh, the standard response has always been, well, let's send a person off to 28 day inpatient. Uh, if that's not successful, send them back to 28 inpatient and then they go to a halfway house. Uh, and that was a dynamic that I saw when I was in, in St. Paul. I live in St. Paul, Minneapolis. A lot of people coming out from out of town to treatment centers, then staying in Minneapolis, uh, trying to recover, and then oftentimes, unfortunately, relapsing and, and sometimes dying. And so I was trying to figure out like what's going on in the system that doesn't work for many people, most people, but particularly for the more affluent, well-off, well-known. And so um, I began to you know think about that as part of my own recovery because uh, when I went through treatment, as Arden mentioned, almost everybody I I went through treatment with my peer group, relapsed, and I was kind of surprised to, to see that. And then um, I discovered several years later that the uh, airline pilots have very, very high recovery rates because they have a different, a different recovery model. And that's the model that uh, Arden was referring to as, as something that we try to use in working with families. So uh, I think the, the key is thinking of addiction as a chronic long-term disease that needs management over many years. And so uh, it's not episodic. It doesn't get fixed in 30 days or 40 days or 60 days. It has to be managed over the long term. And I think that's the key for all families, including affluent families. Uh, we just need to manage that recovery process over the long term with help with professional advisors. So uh, I think that's, we can talk about that a little more, but I think uh, the uh, we can also talk about uh, my experience in treatment, which is, I, uh, if you want to talk about that a little bit, I think one of the key aspects of treatment for anybody is to be able to tell your story, be accepted for who you are. And I think more affluent people when they're in treatment or professional people don't want to tell their story because they're afraid uh, of negative feedback. And so they don't really get the benefits of recovery because they don't actually tell their whole story to others and be accepted for who they are. They they make up stories or they don't tell the whole truth about their lives and, and they don't get the benefit of, of being, uh, feeling like they uh, fit in with the group, so to speak, so. So let's, let's go through that thread a little bit, Bill, because I think it's an important one. I mean, we know stigma exists around substance use anyway i think if we've seen anything in the last five years it's that there's more coverage by mainstream media outlets about the mental health you know of our population and even rising substance use rate amongst those both who have addictive disorders and frankly those who were isolated during the pandemic and were just drinking way beyond what are considered moderate drinking norms i guess my question to you is what makes it what is the stigma with affluent people why are they afraid to share their story you know, what is the nervousness? Why are they reluctant to go to self-help groups like Al-Anon? And what do treatment centers or other types of providers need to do to decrease 
their nervousness? Well, I mean, uh, I think uh, part of the, the concern, on, and, and I saw that both as an intern in a treatment center and being in a treatment center myself, is there's a lot of, uh, of, of what's, what's called wealthism. Uh, Joni Bronfman coined that phrase, wealthism, which is resentment against the wealthy. And uh, I could see that in, in these treatment centers. It's an AA. It's in a lot of recovery groups. Uh, there's just a lot of resentment against people who have money. And, um, and it, it, it becomes a therapeutic issue in treatment if the, if the treatment providers and, and the peers uh, don't like people with money or people who are affluent or otherwise uh, believe that they're you know, don't, not deserving help then that's a big problem. So there's the prejudice against the wealthy that's kind of, I think, rampant in our society. And then it gets reflected in, in recovery groups and in, in treatment groups, in, in the treatment professionals. And so, I mean, that's a big issue. We're, we're not in a, going to settings where people you know, actually want to help us. And I think that's been a big detriment, particularly for younger people go to treatment. And they come out and they relapse and their parents don't really know why. And it's oftentimes because they're not comfortable in the treatment setting. They have people who are making fun of them or otherwise they just don't say anything. They don't talk. And so they don't talk about their lives. Uh, they can't get better. So that, that's one issue is, is just resentment against the wealthy. Second thing is that a lot of treatment centers don't understand that money is an integral part of our addiction process for people who are affluent or actually anybody really, but for the affluent in particular. And, uh, they ha you have to deal with how the financial system is supporting the addictive process and then kind of untangle that and, you know, create a positive uh, environment for recovery, which means, frankly, you know, sometimes telling people, you know, we're going to have to, you know, limit your access to resources until you, you take treatment seriously because we don't want to see yourselves, you see yourself killing yourself, killing yourself with all this, you know, you, money will allow the addiction to continue and we don't want we don't want to see that so uh that's the other thing you, you, treatment centers are not really good at trying to figure out how the addictive process is being supported so that's the second factor so based on that even talk a little bit about the consequences that wealthy people experience i know when i share my brother's story you know, our behavior as a family was to rush in and save him. And we use lawyers and money and status and whatever connections we had to keep him in school or to try and make sure he was protected in a court hearing um, so that he didn't suffer the consequences that an average person would. How do you think about consequences for wealthy people with addictive disorders and how do they vary from those who are of more modest means? Uh, good question. So uh, there's some data out there that shows that the uh, more severe consequences you have from your use, more likely you're going to take your addiction seriously. So if you have a lot of consequences, jail, uh, automobile accidents, uh, lose your job, etc., you're more liable to think you have a problem than other people who can avoid those kinds of consequences. So uh, money allows people to avoid the consequences of their use, and so it continues on and on and on. Um, and meanwhile, the psychological, the, the physical, the health issues continue. So, um, yes, uh, families try to, and individuals have systems that help them avoid consequences of their, their alcohol use. Uh, nannies, uh, obviously lawyers, uh, 
there's a whole system kind of set up to protect people from the consequences uh, of, of driving while drinking if they have a lot of money, et cetera. So um, th that's one of the big issues is avoiding consequences. And also the family is many times interested in protecting reputations, et cetera. So they will work overboard uh, to avoid consequences. And my big thing is let's create consequences or let the natural consequences happen. And so, uh, Arden, you know, we've talked this, uh, about this a little bit, but for trusts, for example, uh, there should be a clause in every trust that reduces access to funds if there's an addiction problem and allows uh, the trustee to hire experts to um, help him or her uh, work through the what what the beneficiary needs for recovery. So uh, similarly, uh, I think families have to figure out how ways to uh, make sure that if somebody has an alcohol or drug problem or actually any other behavioral health problem, uh, there's some consequences for that and, and that, that they address it directly. So. So one of the articles I rely on a lot, you define explicit versus non-explicit leverage. And so where I think our toughest cases come in, you know, as you mentioned in a trust case or in a case where there's a young person who's financially dependent on their family, even a not so young person, but somebody who's in their 40s, 50s, hasn't worked, but depends on a distribution and there's some flexibility in the trust, it's a little bit easier to gain that leverage. Where it's been more difficult are cases where there's a trust that is not as flexible and or a highly functional individual who outwardly looks very successful. They're running a business, they're the patriarch of a big family, and perhaps their wife is not at a place where, I'm giving a you know generic example, wife is not at a place where she's gonna divorce or take any major action. You know, what do you do in those cases where the leverage or the consequences harder to define based on the person's position in the world? Uh, yes, so we, we've got, there are two parts of that actually, because we really haven't talked about leverage. So we, we refer to uh, incentives. So what really works for recovery these days is something called incentive-based management. And so if you create some incentives for people to comply with their treatment program, it turns out that that's, that works uh, better than no incentives. So just letting a person try to recover on their own is not successful. That's one of the reasons we have such low recovery rates. Uh, that 12% in the New York Times article, I think is, is fairly accurate. And so uh, now the new approach is let's use incentives to try to encourage people to comply with their treatment programs. And of course, that's what the doctors and the pilots have to do because unless they comply with their treatment recommendations, they can't get their license uh, returned to them to fly or practice medicine. So incentives are and leverage are important and we try to find ways to encourage people to comply with their treatment recommendations by using either money access to resources or a little bit of help in early recovery so the problem you're saying is when there's no uh, leverage when you have somebody's just on their own uh, it's going to be very difficult and uh, situation and you have to find other ways of of trying to impact that person uh, I know that for some senior citizens, uh, taking videotapes of them when they might be drinking too much helps. Uh, and then you can kind of maybe play it back to them. There are other things people do, uh, other other efforts. Uh, sometimes uh, they're really out of control. You you hire uh, uh, somebody to be kind of be with them to make sure they're safe. Uh, but it's a, for the 
for the seniors, for the older family member who, where there's not a lot of leverage, uh, there's not too much you can do except, uh, I think, try to uh, stay in dialogue with them about some of the effects of what their impact on their grandchildren or uh, a community, uh, maybe reputational concerns will affect them. So. I mean, that I think we're seeing a, a larger percentage of our clients coming in that baby boomer generation who are aging and are struggling with substance use. And many of them, it's due to a lack of identity, a sense of purpose they found through work. And now what was a five o'clock couple of cocktails at the end of the day, it's starting earlier in the day and it's more out of control use and or they're metabolizing the alcohol differently because of other medications that they're on. And so to your point, it's I think a hard demographic to address. Um, some of the things you've said, you've mentioned, we've used, I think we've seen people who have actually restricted access to grandchildren. We've also seen medical interventions um, as successful at times. If you have a very active concierge physician who can come in and talk about you know, what their labs actually look like and blood work in a very data-driven way. Um, you know, people who are getting close to cirrhosis of the liver, as death, you know, as sad as that is, sometimes that creates some impetus for someone to think about change. Yes, and I think the medical intervention is a really good idea. And I think now they're using more brain scans. You can say, let's let's take a look at your brain. We're worried about the, the status for potential dementia or whatever, you know, an excuse to go visit the doctor. And then the doctor says, geez, I look at this brain scan, it looks like you're deteriorated substantially, and that's a reflection of alcohol use. So some people, that, that can wake, it's a wake-up call, and for the, the brain scan can be very helpful. Other, other people, it's not, uh, the doctor doesn't have a lot of influence, and they, you know, they change doctors. So, uh, But I, I, I'm totally, um, I mean, I have two very close relatives who are older, and they just continue on drinking, and nothing stops them and uh it's it's difficult so sure. uh, but you can sometimes hire you know that that companion to be with them while they're make sure they're safe and that that may help but that's about it so yeah more of a harm reduction at best approach so i'm going to switch gears for a minute and then come back at the end to you know an issue we talked about that i know it's important to your heart around system failures and how we do better as an industry but but to start off you know if I know some of the people listening to our podcast work in the wealth management profession or their family office professionals. You know, how do folks like this who are not trained clinical professionals, how do they make a difference or how do they intervene, so to speak, with their clients who may be struggling with a substance use disorder? Yes. And so uh, this is something we've talked about before, but a lot of people in the wealth management business don't actually control access to the wealth. They, they manage the money. So they're not in a position to have any leverage whatsoever, and they're in the position of being good listeners. So oftentimes they end up being the confidant for the person that they're uh, basically the relationship management for manager for in terms of finances and maybe some other things, but they um, household affairs or whatever. And so they end up being kind of the personal confidant. And that is the best thing they I think they can do is be a good listener and then try to find uh, somebody who knows, who's an expert who can help them uh, maybe steer the conversation in a direction that uh, uh, ends up with their client perhaps being willing to consider uh, some resources. So the problem we have in our field is when everybody, there's a tendency to say, go to 
uh, call up a treatment center if you want help or go to Al-Anon or go to AA. But those solutions are not working in, in, in our field. And so, uh, although some people really disagree with that, they think uh, the current system works great. So, uh, but I think for the relationship manager, it's trying to find a good resource, clinical resource, that they can trust, that they can ref help refer the client or maybe the client's family if, if necessary to uh, for, for consultation and not try to solve the problems themselves. Uh, there's a tendency for relationship managers to want to be the be the uh, go-to person for their client in, in in this area, addiction, mental health. It's that's not a successful uh, approach, in my experience. What are your thoughts about like if it's not the person who's impacted by the substance use disorder, but the family that's resistant to addressing it? You know, somebody who's afraid to bring it up to their dad that he's drinking too much, or afraid to address it with a spouse. What is your advice, either if you're the relationship manager in a case like that, or the family member themselves? Well, I think uh, the the key here is for the family to come up with a kind of consensus as how to approach things, because you have family members with different ideas about what to do, uh, the, the uh, person with the problem is, is not going to respond because, uh, respond well to one or two individual efforts because they can always go to somebody else and say, well, they say I don't have a problem or they don't like your approach. So the first thing that the family needs to do is kind of build consensus around what, uh, they, how they need to move forward and, and also hire an expert. Uh, individuals have very little influence over uh, a person in this situation oftentimes because uh, the family is, is not, you know, working together. And so they, the family can be split by the alcoholic addict, which is very common. So that, would that answer the question? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's always Thank the you. first place to start. I agree. No, I agree. If there's not consensus within the family and there's not a motivation on the family side, to make a change and the individual isn't motivated. I always say, unless there's an external factor that's gonna create chaos, you know, a board of directors is gonna fire the CEO who's an alcoholic. Then, you know, if, the, if two out of the three if don't, ex it don't exist and you have a third aspect that's not effective, we've got no ability to make any change. Cause usually the person with the disorder is not that motivated to change. So if the family's not motivated, you're really kind of stuck uh, in terms of what, yeah. what possibilities exist. And when we talk about the family system, you know, it's, it's, it's larger than just the family. It's people who work for the family. It's people who have relationships. I think the, the one of the weirdest things I ever heard is the, uh, there's a woman who, uh, who paid for her, uh, uh, her, her local, uh, liquor store owner's daughter to go to college and to make sure she always had a supply of wine in, in her backyard. And so, uh, people couldn't figure out how she was getting this wine and she had a secret connection. <laughs> <laughs> and cutting that off is kind of tough, uh, you know. So there's a lot of, of a lot of players uh, involved, including people who are you know dependent on the person for money. You know, there may be a, a wealth advisor or something who doesn't want to you know make a change. So it, it can be. We uh, see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see that, and we so. see it even in when you mentioned the you know the providers who need to educate themselves about dealing with wealthy people. I mean, sometimes. The therapist in a small town where the family is a high profile family 
it can be tricky to tell somebody something they don't want to hear. They can want to keep the patient. They can say, I don't think you need to go to treatment, or I think this isn't as big of a deal as your family members say it, even if everyone around them is saying this is a catastrophe. Um, and so that these are the dynamics that are often not spoken about that make getting treatment and effective treatment even more difficult at times if you have lots of resources. Right, because I think the professional client tell, I mean, the professionals in the field, whether it's treatment field or advising field, they're worried about losing the client because exactly. they, you know, it's hard to get people with a lot of money as your clients. So they tread lightly in terms Absolutely. of the negative, negative feedback. Yeah. So. so I'm going to end on a question that I know is important to you, Bill, which is, you know, I know you've been an advocate for treatment reform. You've been a staunch proponent of the pilot and physician model. Tell us where the system is failing and what you think we could be doing better as an industry of professionals. Well, I think first of all, the, the economic incentives are all in inpatient treatment. You know, the inpatient treatment was 30, 40, $50,000 higher oftentimes uh, for 30 days. And then you have the, uh, the intervention field where somebody comes to your house and they say, pay us five, $10,000 and we'll get your, you know, try to get your loved one off to treatment. Uh, and so all the incentives are in the current system, which is to, you know, kind of break up the family, send a person off to treatment, return them home. There's little interaction between the treatment center and the family. There's HIPAAs used to kind of isolate the patient from the family. And so I'm, I'm a, my, at the moment, I'm in a favor of detox. I think every, you know, people need to be detox in a safe setting, go go to detox for a few days and then come out and, and recover in the community. And I think the effort these days is on recovery management in the community. It's on, on uh, there are different forms of the name, but it's recovery coaching, excuse me, recovery coaching, it's peer support, uh, recovery management organizations, uh, drug testing, accountability, uh, there's some good apps out there that people are using. So that's that's really what um, I think where the action is, is in the community and it's with families getting a counselor and working with a counselor uh, to help them support their loved ones uh, as they continue in their efforts to recover. Because now the data is, it may take four or five, six treatments for a person to become stable. So uh, we got to just understand that it's a long-term process. It's not a it's not going to get over in 30 days. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Makes total sense. Oh. And it's been our experience as well, I think, for many wealthy people too. the model of being in the community and having flexibility as to where treatment is delivered fits with the requirements of the patient and sometimes even of that of the family. You know, they want more say over the way treatment is delivered than what you often get in a residential program. And for us, it's not to say we don't ever send people to residential. It's it's sometimes the the first place we start, um, but it isn't the only solution, which I think is what is the main thing we try to communicate to families. And oftentimes it needs to be combined with a longer term approach to get the results we wanna see. Yes, and I think the, the big issue is for families is like talking about all the relationships and how, for example, money might be supporting the addiction, how we can change that, how we can create positive wealth identities and, you know, get the family all working together. And so you've got that other component that is missing from most treatment centers that you need help with. And I think 
you know, you guys are, are a group that does that. Some other people do it. I've been doing that. And I think families are really grateful for that support because they can't get that any other place. You can't get that in Al-Anon or AA because people just don't understand it. So don't understand it and they don't understand why it's a problem or, you know, they resent it. You know, I wish I had your problems type of thing. And so, um, you know, they, they need specialized services uh, that they're not getting now, and which I think is very important. So. Absolutely. Well, Bill, thank you for being a guest today. And thank you for all the support you've given to me personally and to our company. Uh, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks to all our listeners and our um, our watchers. Uh, we appreciate your support of Beyond the Balance Sheet. If you're so inclined, please feel free to go on your podcast platform of choice and give us a positive review. And we look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.